Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer White. Hi, Jen. Hey, I'm uh, here. Jen, I think we've made it. Like our podcast is big time now. Uh, what? I never dreamed of this years ago, but we received a message that we are now recommended reading for a law class for a, a law school Wait, class is recommended that, listening, listening right listening, listening, <laughs> yes. Thank you, thank you. yes um you know the transcript of it no recommended listening for um the university of kansas kansas school of law um has a family law class this spring and we heard from a professor that we were recommended listening I, that is a huge That's honor exciting. we yeah. thank you and um huge shout out yeah. to all of you taking family law right <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and we feel like this episode especially is good uh for the law students since we have a brilliant professor on talking about some of the amazing legal issues in this area uh yes. so good luck with your class to our law, law school listeners and to everyone else and enjoy this episode Welcome, Jody Madeira, to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I'd like to start by just um, telling you how amazing you are. We'll just start in a good place that you have long been a source of wisdom in this area for me. And I, I know that you have seen my multiple emails at many times and like, hey, there's this issue going on, especially when it comes to litigation with embryos or in the fertility world. And you have really become a go-to source of, of legal knowledge in the area. But <laughs> let's start at the beginning. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about your, your background to start. Who, who are you? So, um, well, first, I am a law professor, and I fell into this area through like a strange combination of events. Um, so back in 2007, I was a fellow at Harvard Law and uh, couldn't get pregnant after a miscarriage. And if you know anything about fertility treatment, you know that Massachusetts is one of those rare states where uh, they offer basically free fertility treatments, you know, or very low cost fertility treatments because it's subsidized by insurance. And so, um, you know, after Used to a be. year of being- There's like 19 states now, almost. That yes, yes, so yes, yes, yes. Back yes. then, yes, Massachusetts. Good job. Okay, go Exactly. On. And so it was one of those very few, very few states. And um, so I was a fellow at Harvard and I knew I was going to never, you know, be there forever. So I decided, you know, after not being able to conceive for a year, well, we better, you know, get this looked into. And so um, long story short, uh, during our first uh, cycle of IVF, we ended up having uh, triplets. And oh, um, wow. As yeah, that that was a wow moment. I mean, I remember the doctor <laughs> saying, "Oh, you have a three percent chance," but you know, when you're putting the embryos back on the day of transfer, you have very little time to make those decisions. And so, I think that you know, I remember thinking, "Oh yeah, let's just put all three back because we only had three. And so, um, you know, and those those triplets are now thirteen. Um, and but but it caused a major redirection in my research because up to that point. You know, I had done a dissertation for my PhD in communication studies uh, on the Oklahoma City bombing, and I was looking at death penalty, and I was looking at uh, sort of more criminal law issues and the issues of closure and how people uh, were affected, you know, by trying to hold other um, perpetrators accountable, and um, which ultimately comes back in with uh, some of the issues I look at now as well. Um, but I was really intrigued by how little information and research and writing there was on not necessarily the ethics of reproductive technology, but the law of reproductive technology. And, you know, and how many stereotypes there were about those who obtained infertility treatments, such as that they were desperate, they would do anything to conceive. And so that's, you know, really, I think what caused a, a redirection in my own research. Wow. Um, and just to talk more about your family before we go into your research. So you have, you have triplets and then you stop there. Is that right? <laughs> nope. Uh, we actually kept going because I, I like to overachieve and, um, and sometimes life brings surprises. And so, um, the triplets are now 13 in 2009, we had a daughter and in 2011, I had another son. 
And after a very strange series of events, um, I had a set of triplets who are now four, about to turn five, um, so, in 2016. Uh, doing the math. And so, so now we have, we have triplets, two and twins. Wow, so seven. that's amazing. Um, so you have lots of time on your hands for research and other things. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Especially, you know, during COVID when everybody's, you know, at home for virtual school. Right. That's right. been very fun. <laughs> um, I mean, I see during swim meets, maybe. Maybe then during swim meets, you can get some work done. Yes. Right. Exactly. Well, I'm, a, I'm also a Ooh. USA swimming official, so right. I like to be on deck. Nice. Um, okay. So back to, back to the research and the change in the trajectory of your professional um, interests. So how did mm-hmm. that evolve? So... Basically, I was I was finding, you know, when I was putting together my own course, I mean, I literally remember being on bed rest and creating this course, which was not just, you know, children in the law, but also, you know, this sort of hybrid course where I would start with, you know, these issues that arose before people actually became parents, you know, of beings with juridical rights. And I remember thinking there is there's a lot of there's a lot of judgments about these um, these folks. And. Um, let's, you know, let's just go back to the, oh, they're desperate, they'll do anything to conceive type of stereotype. And I'm sure that a lot of the people who who mention these stereotypes are well-meaning, but these stereotypes are ubiquitous. They're there in movies, they're there in research. And um, so sort of my first go out of the gate was, number one, I don't think that those stereotypes held true in the the ways we would typically assume, um, either for myself or for other others I knew who had gone through treatment. I mean, so I would have said, yes, I was desperate, but I wasn't desperate in the sense that I was paralyzed. I wasn't desperate in the sense that I turned to the first option that came down the road for treatment. I was desperate in the sense that it made me research very thoroughly, um, be quite knowledgeable by the time I went into the doctor, um, and basically do as much homework as I could to figure out what I wanted and who I wanted it from before I even walked in the door of a fertility clinic. And um, and so that uh, was one of the first issues sort of on a more personal level. And on, on a more professional level, I became alarmed because if if we say that women and men undergoing fertility treatment are desperate then what do we say about people making other reproductive choices? So what do we say about women obtaining an abortion, right? And my creed across the board is trust women and whatever the context. And so um, if if we said that we couldn't trust women with reproductive care in the sense of fertility treatment, then we're also implicitly saying we can't trust them in the form of other, in the forms of other kinds of reproductive care, such as abortion or birth control or, or sterilization decisions. And and I just uh, radically resisted those notions, and uh, and so the farther I went down that path, you know, the more convinced I was that we had to work to really investigate these stereotypes and dismantle them to the extent possible, and learn when when we couldn't dismantle them, how could we, you know, regulate effectively so that people would be protected from the consequences of bad decisions that they were coerced into without assuming that every decision they made within reproductive treatment was was coerced, if that makes yeah, sense. Wow. Um, and where did your, where did that research go? <laughs> what did you find? Well, it ulti- it ultimately got, uh, got me into a book project, which ended up uh, being published as um, my book with um, University of California Press in 2018 called Taking Baby Steps, um, How Patients and Fertility Clinics Collaborate in Conception. And I ended up interviewing uh, 135 men and women and 83 medical professionals um, about just about everything through fertility treatment. And I had another 276 interviews online to sort of use as a control group to make sure that the conversations I were having, I was having with women and men and professionals weren't being um, affected or biased by the fact that they occurred, you know, um, over the telephone, you know, because. Um, and so I found remarkably similar things, you know, through both uh, populations. And but the book project and uh, was just huge. And so um, the highlights there were that, you know, yes, you know, people felt desperate, but they felt desperate in a way that, for the vast majority, motivated them to be careful, to engage in, you know, careful thinking, careful decision making, um, careful uh, ch- uh, choices of of treatment professionals. Um, whether they're going in for a first time or changing professionals, um, and that the desperation issues were really around 
other aspects. You know, either when you had, uh, for example, um, issues like anxiety and depression that were brought on by infertility treatment. Um, they were there at certain moments. For example, when people found out that they were not pregnant, um, they were there around certain, uh, certainly sensitive topics such as how to pay for treatments. And so, you know, I think, for example, if we were able to subsidize or offer insurance coverage for fertility treatment, that would take care of the vast majority of issues that people have around fertility treatment. Because, you know, person after person talked to me about how horrible it was to come to their partner and have these conversations about whether they could pay for yet another cycle. And and so the finances were, were such a source of, of anxiety in particular. Um, but, you know, I found out, for example, that people read fertility um, care documents and form consent documents. They they read them carefully. They considered them. That is really good to hear um, as an attorney. Also, it's so good to hear that the research yes. shows that they're actually reading <laughs> them. That's that is good. really good to yeah. hear. Yeah. And actually, as a communication scholar, it was fascinating because the problem, you know, the, the, again, it's another stereotype, right? Um, that desperate people don't read documents. Um, but the issue is really not reading documents. The issue is who do we believe? Um, you know, and, and if we look at the fertility care context, what happens? We have a situation where a couple or an individual comes into the doctor's office and takes part in a series of conversations that aren't really like typical doctor-patient conversations. They're across a desk, you know, you have your clothes on. Um, and and it's it's more, I guess, egalitarian in some ways, um, less you you are the patient. And um, they have a rapport with their doctor, hopefully. They trust their doctor. They very much want their doctor to like them. Um, and they, they believe their doctor is competent. And then at a certain point in the relationship, in come these forms which say, your doctor could hurt you. Your doctor you know, might do something wrong. And this is the guy that you're trusting to help you bring your family into the world. And I think most people are simply, I trust the doctor. I will read the forms and I know some things could happen. But either I don't think they'll happen to me or I trust my doctor. And so, you know, that caused me to think like, are there better ways to do informed consent? For example, multimedia informed consent, where you would see a video and have the opportunity to get this background knowledge, even before you go in and talk to your doctor about these types of things. And so, you know, that greatly expanded the, um, the scope of my research in yet, um, in yet new ways. That's interesting. Have you seen anyone kind of move forward on that path of changing their consent just away from the, the typical legal form to something more multi multimedia? Oh, yes. Um, since 2015, I've been engaged. I've been involved with a company called Engaged MD, who actually developed a, uh, a wonderful product um, where um, several leading fertility clinics now subscribe, uh, including Shady Grove. And um, there's a series of videos that individuals watch and it has a backdoor so doctors can see and nurses can see, you know, not only whether you're watching the videos, but after you watch the videos, um, there's a series of quiz questions and they can see what did you get wrong? What did you get right? And, and they can make that um, part of their informed consent conversation that they have in the office. And so, um, and these technologies exist for, for other types of procedures as well. Um, but I think that this offers a new front you know, and um, certainly I think you need documents as well as uh, multimedia. But I, I think then how much more powerful is it when you can see um, an embryo develop, when you can see um, a documentation or like a visualization of what ovarian hyperstimulation is? And, you know, and I think I think then how, how much more powerful is it when you can see um, the consequences of using too many embryos, such as Absolutely. triplets, right? And I, I, I um, have to say, it, like, the question just burns in my mind. So you had triplets, you knew the percentage was so low, but when you, you know, went forward, did you think like, we're going to have triplets again? How, how did that happen? Oh, we didn't use fertility treatment for <gasps> anything after the triplets. And right, right. And in fact, um, my son came along, my nine-year-old son came along um, when I was actually breastfeeding and on birth control. And so, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's been a strange journey, right? But bodies are weird. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's, it's been, you know, um, that way for, for many women I talked to, um, many had children after they had IVF conceived through IVF were told they probably would never conceive again. Mm -hmm. And then yet, you know, had, had went on to have other children and, um, it just goes to show that, you know, part of medicine is an art and part of it is a science. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very hard to predict, I think, exactly what's going to happen. 
Um, but you but know, no I think, fertility treatment and a second set of triplets. That that is amazing. Oh, I'm sorry, a second set of twins. Twins. Right. Oh, okay, twins. Sorry, <laughs> twins. Got it. Okay. Thank so. goodness, <laughs> I can't do the triplet thing again. <laughs> and wow. um, but but the the multimedia informed consent actually has led to some really cool things. Um, like myself and a and a colleague of mine who's also a good friend have actually built our own multimedia, not so much informed consent, but our multimedia health education and um, health tracking uh, website and um, a mobile app for college students at risk of substance use. And so uh, we're in the process of testing that out now. And I just think there's so much potential, particularly in in a time of COVID, when you can't get into a provider or um, where you know, you can't get it as regularly as you hope or where there's a need to follow up, but perhaps the patient volume or client volume for mental health professionals is too large. And there's just so much use for those technologies. Um, but yet still so much, so little uptake, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure this applies at many points in your research, but I'm, I'm interested during that time when you're researching for your book, the 2018 one, um, what were there things that particularly surprised you um, that you really didn't expect going through all this research and all these interviews? Uh, yes, I definitely was surprised at how open people were about their journeys and how open they were about how their relationships with their partners and friends changed how their relationship with their doctors changed. Um, and I think that uh, one of the very good things about that research project was that it married interviews with patients um, with interviews with professionals so that, you know, I could get that, that perspective on what nurses thought was desperation or what doctors thought were desperation. And I think what surprised me was that people agreed on what the definition of desperation really was, you know, and how few people experience desperation as it's stereotypically presumed to occur. This, you know, freezing inability or this coercive decision making. And how important it is, I guess, to really assume that people are competent in ways that you normally presume people are competent, right? Um, as well as I think how important it is that families and individuals do have the ability to um, make to set their own course, to come up with their own future in ways that are, you know, both healthy for them and sound medical practice. You know, um, it might be the case where someone wants to have twins or triplets and round out their family, but that always has to be um, sort of constrained by the knowledge of what the side effects are, you know, both short and long term of multiple births. Right. Right. And you found those perceptions consistent that if a patient would be thinking one thing and the nurse who's working with the patient would also be feeling similarly that, that you're not frozen with fear that you are yes. making informed decisions. That's amazing. Right. Exactly. And in fact, you know, doctors and nurses often felt that certain patients, again, the minority, and they tended to be patients who had already been through the ringer and had horrible experiences with other providers, yeah. um, that some patients were just simply too informed, you know, oh. and uh, <laughs> what too does that informed. Mean? <laughs> right. Like they, they, they either had misinformation or they were using past experiences to write sound medical practices, you know, um, or they were being too aggressive with demanding access to treatments that would not help them or weren't the first stop in the journey, if that makes sense. Sure. Like skipping. So perhaps ahead. it wasn't that they were being too informed. It was that they were just being aggressive or in a sense, um, you know, pretending that they were the experts instead of acknowledging that they were coming to an expert and needed to partner with that expert in their care. Hmm. And how did, how did you find that the medical professionals dealt with that? Was that, I assume it's a, it's pretty difficult. Um, it depended on who asserted this, you know, over knowledge, I guess. Sometimes it was the partner and, um, sometimes it was the actual, um, woman who would receive the treatments. And in most cases, the doctor would just say, look, do you trust me? And if you trust me, it's important that we partner in your treatment, because if you dictate to me what you want and you think that I am wrong, if I don't agree, then that's not a partnership, right? And, and I recommend that you find another provider. But if you trust me, I can explain to you why I've chosen your care plan as I have, and we can move forward with that trust. So, and I just think, you know, so much is accomplished in medicine through dialogue, uh, conversation. And again, 
you know, I think that was really um, important to elucidate because we assume that, again, it's document based, that it's a transaction, that it's an arm's length transaction. And in many aspects of medical practice where it's not just, oh, I'm coming to my doctor for a sinus infection, um, you know, there is this long term negotiation in cardiac care, in reproductive treatment, in cancer medicine. And, you know, there are these relationships that penetrate deeper than just that, you know, kind of turnkey relationship. Wow. Uh, so I know you're involved in so many other areas when it comes to legal issues and fertility. What I, I don't even know where to begin on which the next one, like after your book, what kind of became the next big thing that you were following and being involved in? Sure. And so uh, what happened was right before my book came out in 2018, in December of 2017, um, we had a guy in Indianapolis named Dr. Donald Klein, whose story I had been following. And um, this guy had a very um, disturbing story. So he had been um, charged with obstruction of justice because he had inseminated uh, several women in the 1970s and 80s with his own sperm instead of using donor sperm as he had promised um, the women and uh, their husbands whom he treated. And so uh, the problem is that he didn't tell them that he was using his own sperm. And so um, several people had complained to the attorney general in Indiana and he denied that he had ever done such a thing. And uh, but a genetic test proved that he in fact had. And uh, he was brought up on um, obstruction of justice charges and pled guilty. And so it's kind of amazing was, that I think people were expecting him to have committed some other greater crime like fraud uh -huh. or malpractice or something that, you know, because people's lives were really turned upside down by what he did. And I think the numbers were huge, too. Do you know what the latest number is of how many children were conceived from his sperm? Oh, absolutely. I think it's 76. Um, it's the largest wow. case in the, in the country right now. Um, and it might be the largest case in the world, um, although the Carbat case in the Netherlands also has has larger numbers. Um, and I'm sure there are cases out there that might be larger that we just don't know about or that aren't public. Um, and but I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, so the, in the Klein case, uh, it, obstruction of justice just seemed such a weird charge. And although legally it carried the same weight, it was a felony, you know, a low level felony. Um, it carried the same weight as um sort of a, a, a nascent sexual assault change charge or a nascent um, uh, fraud charge, it, it just doesn't have the moral impetus of either fraud or sexual assault. And so uh, what happened was that, you know, people just found it very unsatisfying. And, um, and although you could bring, you know, civil charges, you could bring a malpractice suit for this, um, they felt that on the criminal side of things, um, Klein really escaped accountability. And, but at that at that time, it was also unclear exactly what you could do in a civil sense if you brought a malpractice suit. And so um, after I was interviewed about my book by the Indianapolis Star, because Klein had said that he did these activities to help quote unquote desperate patients. Um, and of course, desperation was at the heart of my own uh, research. Yes. yes. Ah, the connection. <laughs> um, there are so many connections. Oh. And, you know, I, I, and then um, I was contacted by both a uh, a doctor conceived child of Klein and a parent who had been uh, fraudulently inseminated by Klein and asked if I would help advocate for a state law in Indiana. And I was absolutely happy to do so. Um, I do do some legislative work, mostly around Second Amendment issues or, or tort law malpractice issues. Um, but I, I was absolutely thrilled to get involved. And then this, as soon as I began digging into this issue, it became immediately clear that you know, in a strange way, the Klein case and fertility fraud married both my death penalty interests and with, you know, my interest in reproductive technology. Um, because, explain that. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, that's what, not completely obvious to, to some people. <laughs> right. Explain that one. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, my dissertation uh, was actually on Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. And I was um, actually one of the first to look at, if not the first to look at, um, whether people get closure from executions um, through qualitative interviews. So I interviewed 33 individuals who had um, either helped to build the National Memorial or ha who had taken place or taken part in McVeigh's trial or, or witnessed his execution. And my my first initial question was, so, so was it more healing to help build the memorial and learn how to tell stories about this event? Or was it more helpful to sort of go on the justice warpath and pursue legal accountability. 
And, um, and there were people who did both, um, but were primarily embedded in, in one or the other um, contexts. And so what I found um, was two things. First of all, it was way more healing to tell stories about what happened than it was just to be solely involved in the trials. Um, because you can't, you can't uh, dictate how the story is told in a, in a legal way, in a, in a criminal trial. And it's often tr tried in this very dry fashion through a series of receipts and documents and you know paper trails that might be wholly unsatisfying. Um, there's no gotcha moment um, in, in most criminal trials. Um, but if you're if you're shaping the memory of this event, if you're telling the stories of those who died and those who lived, and you know really sort of preserving this, then you're much you're focused on a much broader picture than than just legal accountability. Um, and the second thing I found was that media coverage really mattered. And so um, the reason why people wanted McVeigh executed wasn't uh, because of his role in the bombing so much as it was because McVeigh was omnipresent in the media at the time. And, you know, he was giving interviews, which was actually a strategy created by his lawyer uh, to humanize him, ironically. Um, but it ended up backfiring because, you know, so McVeigh's execution was witnessed by 242 people, 10 live in Terre Haute, Indiana, and 232 back in Oklahoma City via remote broadcast. And people asked Attorney General John Ashcroft to broadcast the execution so that they could see McVeigh die in person. And, um, and they wanted to see him die in person because they wanted to know that he wouldn't be on the media anymore. Um, I remember one participant said, you know, well, Terry Nichols, I can live with him being alive, but McVeigh tries to get on the news and wound us further. So it was viewed as this continuing crime that, that lasted uh, and persisted past the bombing, right? Uh, it could only be um, terminated through his through the termination of his voice, which, you know, um, the silencing of McVeigh. And so um, when I when I put that project together with what Klein did, um, of course, in the context of my work on reproductive technology, um, I absolutely saw fertility fraud as a crime. And here, um, you know, there's this concept that arises of this continuing persistence of a perpetrator in someone's life, right? The presence of McVeigh in the media. How much more so is this relevant when your perpetrator, the guy who, um, you know, as some feel raped you or sexually assaulted you or fraudulently uh, inseminated you is part of your child's genetics? How hard is it to exorcise this person from your life? How hard is it to cope um, with the continued presence of this person? Um, and so that issue of closure from fertility fraud was immediately apparent. Um, and also just the issue of media coverage and how media coverage was sensationalizing these events, how people were dealing with the media, um, the importance of the media, particularly when in Indiana, um, they couldn't really pursue criminal uh, justice as they saw it, you know, through a criminal trial because the charges of obstruction of justice didn't seem to map morally onto the gravity of what he did. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's such a big question. How do people get closure in these cases where they are looking in the mirror or looking at their child and always reminded of it? Right. And, and so I think uh, there's, there's closure on several layers and, and just, you know, just, I'm not sure if I believe in the concept of closure. It's kind of like Santa Claus. Um, you know, I think there's some truth out there, but I think people articulate it differently. So I think um, conception, conceptualizing closure as moving on or moving forward um, instead of being stuck in that moment is uh, is how I would phrase it. Um, and so if we if that is closure, then there's closure has to occur on several levels. First of all, it has to be on the level of the family because individuals often blame parents for not telling them they were doctor conceived, I'm sorry, donor conceived, when they find out they were doctor conceived. Um, and if they knew they were donor conceived, they often have family issues um, when there's different perspectives on whether to embrace these new half siblings that they found, whether to try to hold the doctors accountable, whether to even feel that the doctors did anything wrong. And, you know, or whether how much attention or gravity this issue really deserves. Um, and there's often very varying perspectives among family members. You know, parents may want to leave it alone. Um, siblings, you know, that individuals grew up with might want to leave it alone. Um, or conversely, they might want to push it. Um, and, you know, just dealing with those multiple ways of negotiating fertility fraud within the family is, is one form of closure. And some people get that closure by largely, you know, separating themselves from family members that they were close to before or 
uh, for periods of time or you know until they can work through the issue or perhaps for longer periods of time per perhaps they're going to become estranged uh through this unfortunately um and then um there's also closure you know between the doctor and the patient and the doctor conceived child and this is i think the most difficult form of closure because outside of one or two cases there haven't been really satisfying communications that doctors have had with the individuals to whom you know they've fraudulently inseminated i mean i'm um, i'm amazed that there are one or two cases where there has been that communication but there there has been there has been um so there was actually a case where there's quite a few doctor conceived children and this uh there, the doctor, this is not a public case, but um, actually one of the doctor conceived children looked up the doctor and um, went over to his house and had a conversation, you know, was invited into the house and sort of sat down and had had a conversation about, you know, why the doctor did this. And um, and it was very congenial. And the doctor said simply, I needed money, you know. Oh, wow. And, um, and so that was uh, uh, it also helped that that's um, an honest yeah, reason. I was going to say maybe just like <laughs> that pure honesty, even though it's yes. kind of terrible. Wow. And there was also a willingness to share medical information. And the doctor, you know, said, I, there's no way I, I predicted that this was a, a big thing at that time. I just didn't think through it, you know, and, um, and, you know, contrast that with cases like the Klein case or others where, you know, Klein goes, is on record as saying, you know, I knew you in your mother's womb, quoting a line from Leviticus, um, you know, where he puts himself in the shoes of God. And if God has shoes, uh, that's another philosophical question. Um, but, you know, where where there's this sort of um, narcissism or um, it's almost seems more pathological or, or weird than the simple acknowledgement of I did this, I just needed money. Um, or there is an evasiveness, you know, that doctors have exhibited either because they're being sued or because they um, don't feel that this is wrong or claim to not feel that this is wrong. Um, so I think that type of closure is something that people don't expect, but that they would really, really appreciate. Um, and I also think there's closure um, in how the public regards um, incidents like fertility fraud. And um, and so first of all, you know, these closure Closure is pursued differently. So in the family, you can, you know, talk, you can go to therapy um, by if you want to pursue closure with a doctor, you can you can sue civilly. Um, and if you want to pursue closure in the larger public sense, you can go to the media. And I think in the media, it's it's been a mixed bag of results because you've had great stories, uh, very powerful stories in uh, publications like, you know, The Atlantic. Uh, publications like New York Times and Ellen, your blog on Above the Law has looked at these stories um, in depth and done interviews um, with people affected by them. And, you know, and certainly uh, that's and, one. And I will just throw out there that this podcast as well, we've done multiple interviews with those who've been affected. So we had one episode 42 with Kevin and he doesn't even share his full identity, but he through a DNA test, found out that he was doctor, what we call what doctor, doctor conceived, doctor donor, doctor donor conceived, um, where his he didn't know he was even donor conceived, and then finding out that it was in fact a fertility doctor, and it was really, I mean, that episode is very interesting to hear his perspective, where he just thought I'm fine with it, like no, no, pro no issue with it. He's just like, okay, that is what it is, um, versus a lot of other kind of. I would say probably a more popular feeling like with Eve Wiley. So she also came on the podcast. And if, for those who haven't heard her story, it's, you know, absolutely mind bending that um, she found out she was donor conceived as a teenager and then asked to meet, you know, become con connected with the donor and was successfully connected with the donor in California. Um, I figured it was like donor 106 and they formed a, you know, parent child or a strong relationship that was really healthy and good. And then only many years later, having children and taking a DNA test and finding out, in fact, that donor was not her biological father, but the doctor who worked with her mother was the doc was her, her biological father. And I know you've worked closely with her on legislation as well in Texas. Um, but yeah, so for, for listeners, there are multiple stories if you want to dig more into, into those. Um, but sorry to interrupt. Go, anyway. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And uh, yeah, I think that context was actually very important because, you know, this media coverage has been, you know, very, I think, satisfying 
um, for individuals that have gone forward and and sort of aired their stories. Um, but it also brings out, you know, this dichotomy in public reaction. So some individuals are immediately grossed out and disgusted by what these doctors did, but others uh, are equally willing to defend the doctors as good individuals who literally gave of themselves and, you know, did something that was generous that enabled another family to have a child and this other family had a child so they should shut up and not, you know, either not care who the child came from, even if the doctor misrepresented that fact, or um, they should be grateful that the doctor had quote unquote good genes and wasn't uh, someone like the janitor is a frequent comparison. So janitors don't have good genes and doctors do. I mean, it's ludicrous, right? Um, it's this genetic essentialism where we sort of extrapolate from the job somebody does, how smart and you know uh, what quality of genetic composition they have. It's it's just ludicrous and, and completely right. mind bending. Oh, and I forgot there was one other um, Maya Emmons Boring, who is our case out of California, who I actually met in the state capitol in in Denver when she was testifying against. Um, or for this law that would that would hopefully stop any of this going forward, which actually I, I would love to ask as well. I feel like there's a lot of backlash against some of these laws that are like, you know, a, a doctor using his own sperm um, to clearly be illegal. There should be clear pass for um, in the law defining that. But there's a pushback saying, well, no one would do that now with DNA testing. So why would you bother with legislation? And I would love to hear your your thoughts on that. Sure. I think that's a very complicated question. And I think there's been some... So it's not only that question, it's also the question of how, uh, of what laws we pass, right? Um, so there is the concept of, do we say that this uh, issue of fertility fraud is a sexual assault? Or do we say it's rape? as many of the patients um, feel. And so, right, whether they call it medical rape or rape or sexual assault, that, that feeling is, is very, is almost um, universal among women who experience this. And the feeling of violation, sexual violation, perhaps would be a better way to phrase it. Um, and so I think that um, absolutely. Um, so first of all, there's a question of whether you know, these events can be covered by other laws, because if they're covered by other laws, we don't need a new law. And we found that they're not. They they fall within gaps. Um, either the statutes and limitations are too long so that you cannot bring claims for fraud, um, or perhaps, you know, as in Indiana, fraud relates to credit card theft. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, deception. And there's a, you know, a, a count called criminal deception, but that is a misdemeanor. And so it doesn't rise to the level of gravity that, really fertility fraud warrants, especially when you've done it 76 times. Um, and then there is the issue of, okay, um, even if we could bring a malpractice action um, under existing you know, tort law, common law tort claim, um, these cases have wrinkles that might not be um, addressed by current legal schemes, by just the general malpractice law. Um, so for example, we have the case of Mortimer versus Rowlett in Idaho, where um, the doctor conceived child could not join the suit with her parents. She was dismissed because the court said there is no doctor patient relationship there. She wasn't conceived at the time. And so you might need a law to ensure that certain people can sue because what if your parents have de are deceased or don't want to join the lawsuit? These children should be able to sue in their own right because it is true that they're not the patient of the doctor in that sense. But the doctor absolutely owed them a duty, just as you would owe uh, a patient a duty to um for example, if you're going to give a patient a blood transfusion and that blood transfusion um, is infected with HIV um, and, and you learn that later on, you have the duty to inform that patient so that that patient can then inform others, such as sexual partners they may have uh, currently or in the future, right? And if you don't do that, then you're going to owe uh, money if that future partner sues you for malpractice. Um, and so they absolutely had a duty to their patients and the children those patients conceived because it was foreseeable that these harms would occur. It was foreseeable that the children could get genetic conditions passed on from the doctor. It was foreseeable that if they had 76 um, offspring at least, that some, some 
in some very close knit cities like Indianapolis, you know, where these folks go to the same high school and churches and uh, are part of the same social circles, that it's possible somebody might meet and marry their half sibling or date their half sibling. Right. Um, and those stories are always amazing. I think we oh, we interviewed um, the author of I think, Scattered Seeds. And one of the stories was about this man who was a donor and maybe Jen, are you, maybe you can remind me, but it was like his child. So he had been reached out to by a donor conceived child of his, and they had started having a relationship on, you know, not, not an improper relationship, but getting to know each other. And, uh, he had a he had a picture of her on his computer. And at one point his child they had with his marriage at that time, who he, he had not shared with his, his spouse about this, um, his child was like, oh, he saw the picture. Or she saw the picture and was like, how do you know this person who I know from camp? Or I forgot oh the exact story. But, but it was like pretty amazing that this that their current their child within their their current family knew the donor conceived child as well. That's such a small world often. Oh, absolutely. And you know, and, and those things can happen. You know, I would say that the odds statistically of them happening vary from case to case, although it could always be a possibility, I'll bite a remote one. Um, but in Indianapolis, you know, it's it's a not a it's it's not a terribly large community, particularly when you look at the demographics of who obtained fertility treatment from Dr. Donald Klein, right? Um, and and e the same thing is true, uh, for example, in Grand Junction, Colorado, where Paul Jones, the Maya Boring case is from, or um, in in you know um, in Texas, where you know McMorris uh, practices in a very very small town. And um, and it's it's a ubiquitous trend in these cases that if one comes out, um, many more cases are likely to occur, even if the doctor doesn't admit to having done this that many times. And I don't know if your research answers this question, but I think a lot of us thought at the beginning this was just kind of a couple bad actors out there. But given the number of doctors that have been revealed to have been doing this, it seems like no, it was a practice. Like this was common. What it, have you seen or have thoughts on that? Yes, a couple. Of, and so, um, first of all, there's always this like human tendency to try to constellate or, or draw connections between these incidents. So there's, yeah, I think, mm -hmm. you know, many who wonder, is there a conference where folks went to, you know, where <laughs> was they discussed there? Oh, no. Are you going to tell us there's a conference? <laughs> I was just thinking that. I was like, did they just go to a medical conference and they're like, hey, here's right, a good exactly. way to do this. <laughs> and, and I think it's just so common sense, not common sense, um, in a, in a, in a logical ethical way, but I think, you know, that, that there are always things we do. And I do not mean to equate fertility fraud to things like jaywalking or speeding, but we all bend the rules in certain ways. And we bend the rules in certain ways without a coordinated effort to bend the rules, right? I'm not agreeing yeah. with a person across town to jaywalk. It's just, it's human to jaywalk and to take shortcuts, right? Mm -hmm. Um, because we're lazy. And so, and we place our, you know, convenience above quote unquote safety when we don't think anything is likely to happen. And I think these doctors, for whatever reason, mis mistakenly judged this to not be a big deal or knew it was a big deal and did it anyways, because yeah. whatever reason, they thought they had great genes, they needed the money, it was more convenient, they didn't have a donor, they didn't want to let people down, whatever, whatever their reason, um, or their excuse, it doesn't matter, it was universally wrong for them to do this. Um, yeah. They just came up with this idea independently. And, you know, because really they have the same goods or bads, depending on what, how you think of them as the <laughs> right. donor does. And, but they're, you know, they've, they're, they're handy, they're accessible, right. And, yes. and they can donate. And, um, I think that some of them may have donated as medical students, you know, and although it should be an absolute brick wall that comes down when it's your patient directly, when you're not just donating to an anonymous individual, mm -hmm. um, but I think some of them said, well, I did it before. What's the big deal? I'll just continue to do it. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, this is such a crazy area. We could certainly talk it all day, but I'm curious. I know you're involved in so many different areas of fertility. Are there others that are really kind of hot topics right now that you're involved in or working on issues with? Sure. I think the issue um, that is sort of related to fertility fraud is also the issue of serial sperm donors. Um, so there's a couple of, you know, these guys that we know of, they donate underground, they might meet up with people 
uh, on Facebook. And I think actually you you did an article related to this um, very recently. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, thanks to a New York Times article about right. these sper- sperm kings, which I actually love the term. I'd never yes. heard it used before. I'd heard yeah. about like number one donor, but I'd never heard right. sperm kings. But I was like, okay, the sperm kings. And we we've had one of them on our actually <laughs> yes. who was in that article. And this goes, you know, this goes to show that um, I think there's this level of frustration out there with um, several things in the fertility treatment industry. On one level, there is a frustration with a lack of regulation, but on others, there is a frustration with um, the fact that there's too much regulation. And so people will bend regulations like providing sperm to a physician um, mm-hmm. because they want to do it more privately, or they want to do it cheaply or something else, and mm-hmm. or they want to have more autonomy. Um, and, you know, we have these uh, sperm kings, and I, I would also call them sperm tourists in some, mm. in some instances, yeah. where they either donate to people in particular geographic areas, or perhaps they travel around the world to donate, and then they seem to take pride in how many children they have. Um, there's one donor um, in England that claims to have 800 uh, children. There is uh, one that lives in The Hague um, that has claimed to have over a thousand children. And and there's really this um, question of how we stop these individuals. Um, and, and how do you? I don't know. I, so I think part of it is, you know, maybe these um, for this for the sperm tourists, perhaps there could be some way to flag a passport um, so that, you know, but there's a question of at least in the United States and in other countries where you have a right to travel, um, you you don't know why someone is traveling, right? And so, but could you flag passports? Um, and certainly, you know, I think the level of regulation, you can have a regulation out there, but is it enforceable, right? Um, and I, I just think that perhaps if we l- liberalize the amount of fertility treatments that are available to people of varying uh, income levels. Um, sometimes it's a problem of geography, right? Um, sometimes it's a problem of accessing uh, donors through sperm banks. Um, maybe if these donors are more readily available um, in ways that people wanted them to be available, whether it's donors with certain characteristics or donors that you know you didn't have to go through a doctor to find, um, but yet these protections could still be in place. You know that that enhances the enforceability of regulations, but it's I think it's a very very tricky area because um, these individuals are basically doing this in ways that are usually invisible to doctors, let alone to you know law enforcement or, or other authorities. Right. Um, wow. <laughs> so there's no there's no good answer. I mean, I have certain cases where. There was one donor, one sperm king, who was banned from a country, who was banned from donating in, in Israel, for example, um, but obviously limiting where that, where he's cut off from donating. Um, and, yeah. and was he was he banned from Israel, or was he banned? And that's banned a good. I mean, I was careful when I was saying it because I don't, I don't know if he's right. banned. Oh, I definitely wrote on it now. I don't and, remember. And the other I, thing I want to say, <laughs> right? Is you banned right. from the whole well, the country other thing or too just is donating? Yes. You could, you could ship your sperm across borders. And, you know, for example, yes. um, individuals who are, um, you know, wanting to preserve sperm can, can send it, you know, basically uh, through the mail to a, an institute that will preserve it. Right. Um, they, you don't have to donate in person anymore. And so uh, if you can do this, you know, for that purpose, then what's preventing you from sending your sperm through the mail to someone else? Um, and they all, now that actually we could probably track, right? Um, but, you know, uh, theoretically, that would be easier to identify than someone going into a public restroom and, you know, and providing a sperm sample to someone like at a rest stop. Um, but, you know, um, we catch guns going through the mail fairly often uh, or, or other materials that are, you know, illicit um, we could probably catch tissues uh, or tissue samples, gamete samples, um, because they would require some type of, you know, Cooling. freezing. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, so at least you, you could flag that. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's really hard. Um, and if we're and if we're going to admit um, that our regulations have a problem of enforceability, is there a will to to put things in place? Um, certainly, um, sperm banks can and should 
take action. But for that to occur, there needs to be these universal databases where, you know, they uh, involving biometrics, for example, where, you know, you can't donate in uh, the United States if you've maxed out your donations somewhere else in the world, right? Yeah. And so if you had a magic wand to pass the laws that you think would be best and most protective of kind of the industry and those looking to conceive as well as donors, what would you want passed? I think uh, I can address that in two ways. The first would be a general orientation. Whatever regulations should be passed should be passed um, from the perspective that um, donor conception or third-party reproduction is an issue that implicates children's rights. It is not governed solely by the rights of the intended parents or the donors. And uh, while we need to keep the rights of the intended parents and the donors and their and their autonomy, their um, their protection in mind, um, ultimately the ones that must live with this choice are those who are donor conceived. And so I would prefer to take the approach that several European countries have taken, and they regulate sort of with the children's rights or human rights. Um, mentality or orientation where children have the right to know their family, children have the right to, to know medical information. And um, whereas in, in the United States, currently you have more of an orientation towards privacy and the protection of you know parents and donors. Um, and I have to say, I, I struggle with that one because it seems obvious that of course we should want to protect the children who are conceived. But then when you compare it to you know natural conception that we we don't sterilize prisoners we don't stop terrible people that we can all agree are terrible people from conceiving we don't stop people from disappearing after a one night stand so maybe those children might not know their parents um, it becomes a little muddled to me can can you kind of clarify your thoughts on that yes I think that in several I mean in several of those cases it's just not possible so um, of course we can't regulate every you know, act of spontaneous um, sexual activity that occurs, every spontaneous conception that occurs. And, um, you know, we can't in that, in those spheres, enforce relationships between uh, children and, and, and the particularly male parents that they will never come to know, right? Um, but we already have mechanisms for protecting them. For example, we offer paternity tests and we offer, you know, um, um, child support proceedings. And certainly, you know, information sharing could be part of that. Um, but I do think that in these instances where these issues are foreseeable and we can we can do more to protect children who are born through donor conception, we absolutely should. And there will absolutely be, you know, things that fall through the cracks, right? Um, there will always be donors who somehow misrepresent their characteristics. Those, um, there will always be issues um, of donors that can't be accessed, you know, when a child turns 18 or at whatever level access can begin. Um, but I do think that if we set this orientation in place, it will it will change how we think of donor conceived children and their rights. And I think that's a very important and important cultural shift and mentality shift that we need to have. And um, the second way I would um, protect or the second uh, thing that I think is most important is again, I think, um, setting regulations in place that are different than just sperm bank policies, which is the de facto regulatory system we have right now. Um, and I and I do advocate for a universal base, uh, a database of donors that's not just you know in each country, um, but one that can be cross referenced across countries. And you know certainly we have these technologies, but it's important you know for donors as well because what if you know donor conceived children. Uh, develop something that the donor does not know it is in his or her background, right? I mean, a donor could be adopted or lack information about medical background, um, either because they haven't had their genetics run um, or because they, you know, um, aren't in touch with branches of families where these conditions have occurred, but they could identify, you know, medical problems that they've had. Um, so it, it really is an informational street that flows both ways, potentially. But, you know, it also does prevent these sort of sperm king situations if the sperm kings donate through sperm banks. And it, it allows, I think, um, tracking and communities to form that are forming perhaps in ways that um, are harmful to families. And, and here I'll, I'll just, you know, there's, there's a, a certain situation which I think is very interesting and it's, um, but it would be alleviated through, I think, a universal donor base to some extent. Um, because right, 
Um, so the situation is this. Um, there are groups, you know, Facebook groups that grow up around certain donors, um, like donor, let's just say donor 100. And then all the families that use donor 100 will get on a Facebook um, page and exchange information. And um, and the families that use donor 100 also signed um, contracts with the sperm bank that, you know, say you won't attempt to identify the donor, you won't attempt to obtain information about the donor, and then they do so on the Facebook page, right? They may find out who the donor is, they may follow the donor on Facebook, but the donor doesn't know, and so it never really comes out. And eventually a member of the group might turn 18 or be able to access information about the donor and might turn over that information to other members of the, of the group. Um, and so, so these people never get in trouble for violating the sperm bank uh, agreements. But if you do a genetic test, you know, and reach out and attempt to contact uh, a relative of the donor through the through that you know genetic testing and I will say contact. Daniel Toyser who that happened to where exactly. <laughs> came on the podcast yes. as well so a great episode um, yes yeah sorry keep going and so and so you know I think these um, I think this you know universal donor system um, where the sperm banks don't maintain sole control sole access to this information um, would be would help alleviate situations like that because in the Tusher case, you know, what happened, the sperm bank, you know, tossed her off the forum. The sperm bank took steps to ensure that she could not get information about the donor. Um, and she does have a right to this information. You know, if you employ a children's rights perspective, her child has a right particularly to this information. And so um, I think right now the power is in the hands of the wrong sectors of the industry. And, and would your, when your magic wand of changing the law, would you get rid of anonymity? I think, I mean, or think, the pretense of pretense of anonymity. I, that is one thing that I very much struggle over. And, you know, there's there's very um, good perspectives on this, you know, by scholars who disagree. For example, I'm thinking of Naomi Kahn and Glenn Cohen, um, you know, Naomi Kahn at University of Virginia and Glenn's at, at Harvard, of course. And um, and there's, you know, both very positive things and very negative things about anonymity. And so um, I, trend, I tend to prefer a hybrid system where you might have anonymity initially, but then there is an opportunity for contact um, when the child grows. Um, and, you know, and but I do think that the better policy is an open policy. Um, the my concern is that that would eliminate or or short circuit availability of donors, um, although in places where you have open donations, such as Australia, they haven't seen, I don't think, a decline in the number of donors that's as large as expected. Um, and so, you know, but I think that's just an issue that we have to watch. And so, again, you just have to balance these things. But, you know, perhaps there could be a repository where, um, let's say, you know, someone does use donor, uh, a sperm don donation that's quote unquote anonymous. And um, the sperm donor passes away when the donor conceived child is 10. And so there would be, you know, several years before the child could get access to information about medical conditions or, you know, um, not medical conditions, but, but, but about the donor's identity, um, let's say. Um, and I think that, you know, there could be a repository of information about the donor where at minimum, that's what the child would get. Um, I do think too, that an anonymity should not exist in terms of medical conditions. If there is a medical condition of any kind, you might not know the donor's name. You should know it. But <laughs> you know that there's a condition that could affect you. You should know it. Exactly. exactly. And there have been numerous cases about, you know, sperm banks being notified either by donors or by donor families about medical conditions, but then they don't flag the donor samples or even get in touch with the donor and let them know that these conditions have been identified in their offspring. Right. Uh, um, well, I hate to wrap this up, but I feel like we could discuss these all day after day after day because there's so oh, many yes. interesting legal issues but we really appreciate you coming on and sharing a bit of your expertise and hopefully those who are interested to listen to the other podcasts and read your books um and we will link to those as well so those people um who might be interested can find your book and and buy that as well uh yes and if and if people are interested i think in fertility fraud more generally there is an, there's two other excellent podcasts that have been done um, there's a sick podcast about mm -hmm. Donald Klein, and then there is a BBC podcast called Immaculate Deception, which are which is about um, largely the Carbat uh, oh, case. I haven't heard the second one, Immaculate Conception. I will have to listen to that one. Oh yes, yes, and uh, and in fact, um, I have a TED talk that grew out of that mm -hmm. one 
Um, I'll have to link to your TED Talk it, as well. Great. <laughs> yes. All the things. <laughs> right. Yes. And so, but I think that, uh, again, it just allows people to, to investigate that issue in different ways. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jody. Or Professor Thank Madeira. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Madeira. I, I actually, I rarely, well, I don't say rarely, actually often I feel dumber after I talk to, because I don't feel like I can keep up, but I really do not feel like I can keep up with you. Like you're, she's so brilliant to talk to. So it, it, that was so incredible and so educating. And you from me as well. You've been such a great resource um, and so willing to share your time and expertise for articles and, and other um, questions. So I'm thankful. And on a personal front, like I, I actually am reading her other book and I will say it is also incredible. So really, really incredible human being. So we're, we're really honored that you came on and talked to us. Yeah. So, um, I guess we're, do, do I, do I beg for, for iTunes reviews again? Like, is it, is it getting to be old a hundred and something episodes later? Yeah, things we'd be honored by as well would be willing to leave. you. <laughs> Share the podcast with your friends. Give us a call. You can call, leave a message. You can email us. Yes. Uh, yes. Do, do you want me to give the number so that they could call and yeah. leave that message? So it's not just me it calling is three, zero, and three messages? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Sorry. I, I mean, you know, I like it when you call and leave me messages. It's fine. So, um, But it's 303-997-1903. And we also... Like Ellen said, we have the website. There's actually merchandise mm. on the website still too. So you can go there yeah. and buy things that might have sperm logos on them. Cause you know, why right? not show the, show the love Late at Valentine's, Valentine's day. day gift is to give someone, um, jogger sweatpants with sperm wearing headphones. Pretty romantic. Exactly right. No. I think that's perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So um, as always, a huge thank you to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, and to Chris at Work at Bird Studios, who does so much for us and we appreciate him so much. So and always, always thank you for being with us and for listening. Thank you.